Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Thank you for joining me today as we study another important and compelling message for the last days. I'm thankful that our Heavenly Father loves us so much that He gave us prophecy to mark our way through to the kingdom. We need to know what is happening in the world around us, as Jesus Himself told us to do in Luke 12, verse 36, when He said we are to watch and pray. Friends, let us always remember that we are called to proclaim the prophetic messages for our times and live for Jesus so that others will find their way to the kingdom of heaven. Please share our CDs with your friends and family and also your church family. We need to stay abreast of the signs of the times, but most are too busy to dig it out for themselves. So that's why Keep the Faith is so important. Our messages come to you each month so you can play them in your car or wherever else you are and hear the drumbeat of Bible prophecy unfolding before you. Let me remind you that you should sign up for our email prophetic intelligence briefings if you haven't done so already. Each weekday you'll receive up to one prophetic briefing so that you can start or end your day thinking about the coming of the Lord. Also, if you haven't ordered your DVD set of our 12-part series called Prophetic Secrets of the New World Order, please do so. You will really enjoy them. I did this series at the request of Pastor Stephen Bohr of Secrets Unsealed, and they have already been a blessing to hundreds, but they need to be shared with your friends and family. Order them by calling our offices at 540-672-3553. Lastly, I want to remind you about last month's insert, Advertising a Beautiful Lie, the special offer from Last Generation Magazine, Unmasking Satan's Dangerous Deceptions About Death. This brand new 32-page issue clearly and simply covers all the important aspects of the state of the dead, the non-immortality of the soul, and what the Bible teaches about hell and why the Bible forbids communication with the dead and why this is so important to understand in the last days. It also features the beautiful truth of the resurrection and our heavenly reward. It's a fantastic outreach tool that you can use to reach others, so order enough. Pre-pressed prices are still available through April 14, 2016, including free shipping to U.S. addresses. Please call Last Generation Magazine and get this number at 540-672-3100. That's 540-672-3100 today to reserve your copies of this special uh, issue at this special price. Ask for Last Generation when you call. My friends, what a privilege it is to be a servant of the Most High God. Let us be faithful no matter what happens. And as we begin today, let us bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we study today, we pray that you will send your Holy Spirit to teach us what we need to know and how to navigate the difficulties that are coming up on this world and upon your people. We pray that you will reveal to us the compelling events that are unfolding around us with discernment, prophetic discernment. And may your presence be felt as we open your word. And may its influence 
strengthen our characters, and may we walk in the newness of life in Christ, prepared for the end times, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles with me, if you can, to Revelation 13, verse 3. The Bible says, And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. My friends, this verse reads like the daily newspaper. It encapsulates some grand sweeping activity in just a few succinct words. The papacy is moving very rapidly to consolidate her power over all nations and religions, not to mention business, finance, and other sectors of society. So much has happened in recent months that it's staggering. The Pope has huge charisma and is using his credibility to reach out to as many as he can. In his first ever video message on his prayer intentions for 2016, which was released on January 7, he urgently called for a unity of all religions. He stressed that they must unite in the things that they hold in common. In other words, eliminate any distinctive beliefs, like the Bible teaching about the dead, that they know not anything, Ecclesiastes 9.5, or the Bible teaching concerning the seventh-day Sabbath, or the sanctuary message and its teachings concerning the three angels' messages. Are those things important? Of course they are. Those distinctive doctrines are the target of Rome. She does not want them taught and is bending every effort to make it very difficult or even impossible to teach them. Rome is working very hard to prepare people to reject them. But remember, my friends, God's power is stronger, and the message will still go out. But that's why Pope Francis is always talking about bridges between people and groups of people. He knows that anyone who does this will unite with Rome in due time, and those who hold to their key biblical beliefs will not unite and will ultimately be demonized as the most unloving and most uncooperative people on the planet. Get ready for it. It's coming, and coming soon. If we downplay the Protestant principles of our faith, what do we have left? We only have a watered-down message that says nothing worthwhile and, in fact, teaches false doctrine. The Pope's video centered on love, but did not define it. Everyone believes in love, even politicians, rock stars, and footballers. But Jesus' love is distinct from all that. It has specific features and characteristics, and if you take it into your life, it will change you and make you different than everybody else. The Pope's kind of love cannot do this. And if we join together in that kind of love, we'll miss out on the true life-changing love and end up with a watered-down, emaciated, effeminate, kind of empty, almost useless love. The Pope keeps talking about building bridges and uniting on common beliefs. But listen to this statement from the book Great Controversy, page 445. When the leading churches of the United States, uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions, then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy and the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. There could never have been a more up-to-date statement than this one. The first part of that rather prophetic statement is in the process of being fulfilled right now under the leadership of Pope Francis. He is uniting the churches on the points they have in common, and the rest of this compelling statement will certainly and inevitably follow. 
We need to understand the papal appeal for unity. Unity of the churches and unity of the political order go hand in hand. Historically, whenever there was unity on the political side, there was unity on the religious side. In the early centuries, the Church of the East and the Church of the West were united around the Bishop of Rome. The empire was united politically under the Roman Emperor, but in the 11th century, that all changed, and there was a huge schism that divided the Eastern Byzantine Church, which became known as the Orthodox Catholic Church, from the Western Latin Church, otherwise known as the Roman Catholic Church. A split in the political empire also accompanied this ecclesiastical split. These two empires have been at odds for nearly a thousand years. Note that religion was intimately involved with the state, which is a key principle of the Roman Catholic Church. Russia, which was part of the Eastern Empire, is still separate from the West, both politically and religiously. Likewise, the Russian Orthodox Church has been alienated from the Roman Catholic Church all that time as well. In the Western Empire, we see this again during medieval times. Charlemagne, or Charles the Great, united Europe politically and religiously around the Roman Catholic Church. I might add that they were economically and militarily united as well. When the Church was united, the nations were politically united. But the devastating part was that when the churches were united, the state, on behalf of the Church, would persecute the true followers of Jesus, who kept his commandments, especially the Seventh-day Sabbath, and opposed the corruptions of Rome. For instance, when Clovis united the empire under the emperor Justinian, who in turn elevated the Roman bishop as the head of all the churches of the empire, he also handed temporal power to the bishop of Rome as well. Almost immediately, persecution began of all those who would not submit to the Roman bishop. The papal plan for unity of the churches is mighty significant. The deadly wound has two aspects, political and religious. The Reformation caused the religious aspect of the wound, while the French Revolution caused the political aspect of the wound. Pope Francis knows that there will never be political harmony unless the churches and religions unite. The one leads to the other. If Rome is ever going to be queen of the earth, she must heal this religious deadly wound. That's why Protestantism is her primary ecumenical target, but that's not the only target. Rome's underlying spirit hasn't changed. She still teaches that those who refuse to unite with Rome are heretics. She doesn't use that language, of course, but she says it nevertheless. For instance, listen to the recent words of Pope Francis. Christians who say, it's always been done that way, and stop there, have hearts closed to the surprises of the Holy Spirit. They are idolaters and rebels and will never arrive at the fullness of truth. But there is another reality, the Pope added. There is the Holy Spirit who leads us into full truth. And for this reason, he needs an open heart, a heart that will not stubbornly remain in the sin of idolatry of oneself, imagining that my opinion is more important than the surprise of the Holy Spirit. In other words... Those who believe that their opinion or viewpoint or scriptural understanding of truth is more important than how the Holy Spirit is going to bring the churches together in unity and hold that Bible view firmly will be considered to be obstinate, rebellious, and idolaters. 
Ultimately, though the Pope didn't say it, these will not be tolerated. He is laying the foundation for what will come later. When the papacy has united all the churches, she will have achieved a unity with the nations in the service of the church as well. Think about it for a minute. Globalization is bringing the nations into a new world order. Rome is already moving to sit atop that new world order and is guiding the United Nations in this process. She gained a, a huge signal victory along that line with her full-throttle orchestration of the climate agreement in Paris. And because of her success there, she is now looked upon as the great global dealmaker by most countries of the world. Rome will sit as queen of the earth, as it says in Revelation 18, verse 7. And when she does, she will then turn the weapons of her warfare upon the true followers of Jesus once again. Mark my word. There will be Sunday worship laws, there will be restrictions of your liberties, and there will be oppression, once again, of all those who, or that refuse to unite with the ecumenical churches. This world is full of crises, my friends. Everywhere you turn, there's a crisis. Every day seems to bring news of a new crisis. If it isn't the economic crisis, it's the Zika crisis. If it isn't the migration crisis, it's the military crisis. If it isn't an ISIS crisis, it's a climate crisis. People are terrified of the future. Jesus said that in the last days, men's hearts would fail them for fear. And when fear grips the nations of the world, it gives urgency to unite under the Pope, who will claim to be able to solve the world's problems. On January 12, 2016, Pope Francis addressed the Vatican's diplomatic corps, which included representatives from all the nations with which the Holy See has diplomatic relations, and nowadays it's the vast majority of them. The Pope said, Every authentic practice of religion cannot fail to promote peace. What did he mean by that? The word authentic means true or real. In other words, true religion brings peace. And while that is true, the truth is that it brings peace with God through the Scriptures, not geopolitical or interreligious peace. Instead, true faith brings enmity and war with the devil and anyone on the planet that is allied to him. All the papal speak about peace does not call for a change of heart. He works for peace by downplaying Bible teaching and uniting on false doctrines and principles. He's working to make it appear that the Vatican is pious and genuine in its appeals for peace. But especially does the Pope want you to lay aside any doctrine that is different from others, even if it is directly from the Bible. The Pope is saying that those who refuse to unite with Rome and downplay their distinctive doctrines will not contribute to the peace that this world really needs. They are not true Christians, and their religion is a false religion. Listen to what he said. Peaceful coexistence between the followers of different religions is possible when religious freedom is recognized and practical cooperation in the pursuit of the common good. In a spirit of respect... For the cultural identity of all parties is effectively guaranteed. Well, that's a mouthful, but if he would have said that peaceful coexistence between the true followers of Christ happens when we come into line with Christ, we would agree with him. But that's not what he said. He is saying that so long as we work for the common good and give everyone religious elbow room, we can have peaceful coexistence by laying down any particular belief that conflicts with anyone else. 
But coexistence is not what Christ calls for in the last days. Jesus bids us to make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, 19. And then he said in Matthew 10, verse 34, Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Do you see what Francis is doing? He's calling for the world to unite under Rome. Then he says that those who do not are not true Christians and cannot coexist with others peacefully, even if they're nonviolent. And the ultimate conclusion of this thinking is that they will have to be eliminated from society because of their obstinacy and their rebellion. Of course, his words sound good, but it's only window dressing. He is pursuing a line of reasoning that will place the papacy and the pope on top of the political and religious world at the same time. He is aiming to have unity in both spheres under his authority, to finally heal the deadly wound, but he is offering a global solution that will never work. The reason it won't work is because Rome is leading all the churches and the kings of the earth, which are the political leaders, and the merchants of the earth, which are the economic leaders, into an immoral relationship that will only draw the nations away from God's holy law. The Bible calls this fornication. This will lead them to conflicts and wars of all kinds, some of them at least orchestrated by the Vatican itself. This is satanic, for the enemy hates God's law. Uniting with Rome will only create more problems, especially problems for the nations in terms of natural disasters, wars and rumors of wars, and civil conflict. The scripture says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? Rome does not urge the nations to obey God's Ten Commandments. She urges them to follow her set of commandments that is quite different from those that God actually gave. It is this separation from God's law that removes God's hand of blessing and permits the devil to bring trouble and disaster upon the nations of the world. Pope Francis is working diligently to resolve differences between the papacy and many religious bodies of the world. He's been working to bring the Pentecostals and Evangelicals to Rome. No one can forget the work of the late Tony Palmer in bringing Pope Francis' video message to Kenneth Copeland and his fellow Pentecostal ministers in Texas, and how they later followed it up with a meeting with Pope Francis in Rome. Many people also know of the work of Pope Benedict XVI in bringing the Anglican churches back to Rome through an ordinariate especially designed for them so that they can keep their Anglican rites and married clergy, while at the same time being under the Pope's authority. Giving conservative Anglican congregations an ordinariate of their own was a surprise coup d'etat over the Anglican church. But the Pope has now taken a very important step to heal a wound that has been festering for nearly a millennia. Pope Francis met with the Russian Orthodox Patriarch Kirill in February for the first time in history. The meeting had been worked on secretly between the Vatican and the Patriarchate for over two years. Finally, they agreed to meet in Cuba, away from the source of the conflicts and schisms of Europe. You need to understand that the Catholic West and the Orthodox East, which includes the Russian Orthodox Church, split all the way back in 1054, more or less, over the authority of the Bible versus the authority of the Pope, and over the celebration of Easter or Sunday observance. Easter is the great symbol of Sunday observance, you know. The Eastern Church was unhappy with papal intrigues and power plays and its rather overt effort to control the Eastern Church. 
The split came when they could not agree on several matters relating to Roman Catholic authority in relation to the pagan and unbiblical Easter Sunday. Easter, like most Catholic holidays, has its roots in paganism. Through the Catholic Church, the pagan symbols and meanings have been converted into Christian symbols and meanings. And there is much that could be said about Easter, Christmas, the veneration of saints, and many other aspects of the Catholic calendar that would show you its pagan sources. But suffice it to say for now that Rome and the Orthodox East split over papal authority in relation to Easter. But that's not all. Think about the political differences between East and West. Ever since 1054, there has been political tension between the Russian-dominated Eastern Bloc and the European powers, and then later the American-dominated Western powers. Consequently, there was little common ground between the Russian Orthodox East and the Roman Catholic West. They have different Bibles, different religious symbols, and different ecclesiastical structures. In most people's minds, the Catholic Church was allied with the West. It is a Western religion. There was little that could be accomplished by having meetings between the two churches. Also, the ecumenical movement didn't even begin until about the mid-1960s. During the Cold War from the 1960s through the 1980s, as the ecumenical movement was rising, the geopolitical tensions between East and West also kept the religious separation virtually impregnable. The Eastern Orthodox Russians and the Western Roman Catholics had little common ground for ecumenical collaboration. Then in 1989, the Cold War ended. But tensions were still strong. The Eastern Orthodox Church accused the Vatican of trying to convert Russians to Catholicism after the breakup of the Soviet Union. And this added to the tension between the two churches. But it happens that in the Middle East, both churches have their adherents. The powerful persecution of ISIS against Christians in general has raised the concern of both the Pope and the Patriarch. And because of this, the Pope knew that it was an opportune time to find common ground with his Russian counterpart. He made concerted efforts to find a way to meet with Patriarch Kirill in order to talk about ways to stem the flow of Christian blood. Remember, he was on a mission to bring the churches together. And the Orthodox Church, of which the Russian Orthodox Church is a part, is the second largest church in the world behind the Roman Catholic Church. It would be essential to heal their wounds for Rome to ascend to become queen of the world. Pope Francis has argued that Christians should unite together to protect their persecuted brethren, calling it an ecumenism of blood. Patriarch Kirill was open to this argument and even said that it was necessary for the two sides to meet in order to find a solution to help persecuted Christians. In other words, like in so many other areas, Muslim extremists have been the catalyst in bringing on the fulfillment of prophecy. <laughs> the ISIS persecutions have become the underlying reason for the reproachment of the Eastern and Western churches. Pope Francis was so eager to meet with Patriarch Kirill that he told him in 2014, I'll go wherever you want. You call me and I will go. Apparently the Patriarch had difficulty envisioning a meeting at the Vatican or in Western Europe because of past and current tensions. Since he was going to visit Cuba on official business in 2016, they agreed to meet privately in the airport in Havana. Apparently, Cuba is neutral ground to them. Cuba, they said, is also the crossroads between north and south, east and west. 
By meeting far from the long-standing disputes of the old world, their joint statement said, we experience with a particular sense of urgency the need for the shared labor of Catholics and Orthodox who are called, with gentleness and respect, to give an ex explanation to the world of the hope in us. Cuba has been a geopolitical stronghold aligned with Russia for more than five decades, even though it is in the West, just 90 miles off the American Florida coastline. Yet Cuba has a strong Roman Catholic population, and though it has close ties with the Russian East, it also has new and flourishing ties with the American West. It was Pope Francis who secretly orchestrated the rapprochement between Cuba and the United States. Meeting in Cuba was a convenient way for the Pope and the Patriarch to avoid the tensions that would surround a meeting in Rome or Europe and symbolically show that East and West could collaborate when circumstances demand it. When there is a solution to the political alienation, there is then the possibility of solving religious alienation. Remember, the two go hand in hand. That is what the meeting in Cuba demonstrated. The Eastern Patriarch is known as the Patriarch of Moscow and all of Russia. The title clearly defines his territory. No one, not even the Catholic Church, can encroach upon that territory, at least not while the separation continues. After a two-hour discussion, which they described as brotherly, they signed a wide-ranging joint declaration that discussed Christianity in Europe, the plight of Christians in the Middle East, and the need to resolve the division between the two churches. The two men concluded their joint declaration by invoking the Virgin Mary, saying they needed her mercy to heal the wounds and point the way forward in uniting the two churches. The declaration refers to their face-to-face -face meeting as a means of repairing long-standing conflicts and wounds between the two churches and calls on the faithful of both communions to respect each other and seek not to compete. But the meeting was not just a religious meeting, it was also a political meeting. Many of the points in the joint declaration are strongly political. It affirmed the Christian roots of Europe. It addressed the family and marriage, condemning alternative forms of cohabitation and the perversion of marriage. It urges families to raise their children Christian. It also condemned abortion without using the term. It addressed migration and calls on nations to be welcoming of migrants seeking a better life. It discussed religious freedom and the forces that undermine it, mentioning in particular Western societies where aggressive secularism has arisen and has created problems for Christians trying to live their convictions in the public square. All of these and more are strong political issues. As you can see, in the Roman Catholic and Orthodox mindset, religion and politics always go together. To separate church and state would undermine their common, uniting principle that the church is the moral guide of the state. The American Constitution is, therefore, an anathema to them. And that explains why Rome has always tried to undermine the U.S. Constitution, and for that matter, other Western constitutions. She seeks to replace them with her own moral code. The separation of church and state has made it difficult for the papacy to establish ecumenical unity in Western nations. And it's taken a very long time. The separation of church and state overthrows the power of the Catholic Church in any nation that adopts it. Perhaps one of the most significant points in the joint declaration is that it also condemns proselytism. 
Recognizing the joint mission of Christians to proclaim the gospel of Christ, the Declaration says, This mission entails mutual respect for members of the Christian communities and excludes any form of proselytism. Consequently, it cannot be accepted that disloyal means be used to incite believers to pass from one church to another, denying them their religious freedom and their traditions. As you can see, my friends, soul winning and conversions from one Christian faith to another is not appropriate in the age of ecumenical political correctness. In other words, if you tell people that they are breaking God's law by breaking the Sabbath and keeping Sunday, you're depriving them of their religious freedom and their traditions. If you tell people that the Bible is the only standard of faith, you are depriving them of their religious freedom and their traditions. Obviously, Rome's definition of religious freedom is different from yours and mine. To Rome, religious freedom means that church members and pastors don't contend for the faith of someone that already acknowledges that he is a Christian. Yet the Pope freely contends with the faith of other churches, ethnic groups, politicians, etc. Popes have worked to bring conservative Anglican churches to Rome and have contended for Orthodox members as well. So apparently it's okay for Rome to do it while nobody else is permitted. And what of disloyal means? Any use of tactics or practices that would undermine the ecumenical movement which Rome controls would be considered disloyal means. Home Bible studies, for instance, in which the Bible topics studied address the corruptions of Rome, such as the three angels' message of Revelation 14, would be considered to be using disloyal means. The lengthy meeting in Havana comes as no surprise in light of Pope Francis' concentrated efforts to bring churches together in full, visible, and sacramental communion. It gives Pope Francis one more diplomatic victory over long-standing disagreements and conflicts. Keep in mind he has achieved much in the first few years of his pontificate. Firstly, he engineered the rapprochement between the United States and Cuba. Secondly, he has brought about many Christian groups to Rome in ecumenical alliances, including Pentecostals, Evangelicals, Jews, and even Waldenses, among others. Thirdly, he has orchestrated a global climate deal that has never been achieved before, and now he has met with Patriarch Kirill for the first time after nearly a thousand years of division in an attempt to restore their unity. Now think about this, my friends. If the Eastern Orthodox Church split from Rome in the 11th century and the Lutheran Reformation split the church in the 16th century, creating a second schism and a third part to Christianity, you would expect then that efforts would be made to reconcile the Lutheran Church and the Catholic Church, right? Well, that's exactly what is happening. The Pope is planning to be a guest of the Lutheran Church in Lund, Sweden on October 31, 2016, for an ecumenical commemoration service of the start of the Lutheran Reformation. It will be a highly symbolic act of reconciliation and unity, and it will take place exactly one year before the 500th anniversary of the start of Martin Luther's Reformation. The surprise move will see the head of the world's Catholics worship alongside the heirs to a religious tradition founded in opposition to the Church of Rome and which once regarded the Pope as the Antichrist, say new sources. In another joint declaration between these two churches, they said that the event would highlight the solid ecumenical developments between Catholics and Lutherans. There are a number of Orthodox churches. 
The five largest ones are based in Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Moscow, in order of their precedence. Pope Francis had previously met with the first four. Patriarch Bartholomew of Constantinople, or Istanbul, the so-called first among equals of the Eastern Orthodox Catholic Church in 2013. But the Russian Patriarch has issues with the Catholic Church that the others do not have. Not surprisingly, these issues have both political and ecclesiastical roots. And now Pope Francis has just met with the last and final Patriarch. This brings the whole Orthodox Communion, the second largest church in the world, into fraternal and ecumenical dialogue with Rome. Do you think that soon the wound between them will be healed? These churches were once united with Rome, but their efforts to suppress and persecute God's people were thwarted by their internal divisions, which no doubt the angels of heaven used to their advantage to limit their power. What do you think will happen when these unite once again? Let me read it to you in Revelation 13, verse 7. After the deadly wound was healed, Revelation 13, verse 3, the Bible says that it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. In other words, my friends, we are watching very crucial developments in our own time that are taking us right into the persecution of the saints and the close of human probation. If these churches unite... If the Eastern Orthodox churches unite with the Church of Rome, if the formerly Protestant churches unite with Rome, it will lead them naturally to persecute God's people. Pope Francis' meeting with Patriarch Kirill is a warning to faithful followers of Jesus in Russia, but it is also a warning to faithful followers of Jesus all around the world. Watch out! Better yet, watch and pray, earnestly, that the Holy Spirit will give you power to stand with a lamb and overcome the beast and his image, and also suffer with the people of God. The Bible says in Revelation 12, verse 11, that they love not their lives unto the death. That tells me that there is going to be some serious stuff happening in the near future, my friends. Don't go on thinking that you have all kinds of time to get ready. These things are happening right before our eyes. Pope Francis believes that he has but a short time to accomplish all that he wants to do. He is a masterful Jesuit that has captured the emotions of the world, but he is just an instrument of a higher principality and power. The Bible says in Revelation 12, verse 12, Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, that ye, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea! For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Friends, it is the dragon that is using the Roman church to prepare for persecution of the saints. It is the dragon that is orchestrating the unity of the nations and the unity of the churches. Revelation 12 verse 13 says that he persecuted the pure woman. That can only happen when the churches and nations unite with the Vatican against God's people. This includes political leaders, economic leaders, and religious leaders, my friends. They work together to prevent you from sharing your faith. They will work together to prevent you from following your conscience and your convictions. What does it mean in Revelation 13, verse 7, when it says that the beast will overcome the saints? Friends, this is talking about removing the liberties that you once cherished, 
It's talking about taking away your freedom to worship according to the Bible on God's holy seventh-day Sabbath. It's talking about the Sunday laws that will come upon the whole world when it unitedly worships the beast and the dragon. The coming together of nations in healing their political animosity to Rome is happening rapidly. Political leaders collaborate with Rome to get power. Economic leaders collaborate with Rome to get rich. And religious leaders unite with Rome to get influence. The Bible calls it fornication. The power once held in abhorrence, they now embrace. Revelation 13 verse 9 says that if any man have an ear, let him hear. But friends, there is more. The Pope is also working to arrange a diabolical mechanism completely opposed to the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and the right of freedom of speech around the world. It is freedom of speech that gives you the right to proclaim your beliefs to anyone and everyone. Rome wants to curb that. During the month of January, Pope Francis had meetings with certain people that need to be understood clearly. First, he met with Eric Schmidt in a Vatican private audience in January. Schmidt is the CEO of Alphabet, the parent company of Google. Pontiffs rarely give private audiences to top business chiefs. They don't want to appear as if they're endorsing their products. However, there are obviously larger issues that the two men needed to discuss. The Vatican will not discuss the mysterious content of their 15-minute meeting, but we have some very big clues concerning their plans. Eric Schmidt was reported to say, as he bid farewell to the Pope, I want to work with you to make these points. We will make it happen. Obviously, they discussed ways to make something happen that was very important to the Vatican. The Vatican obviously requested something of Schmidt, and Schmidt granted the request. Do you think that might have anything to do with the control of the Internet? One week later, the Pope granted a private audience with Tim Cook, the openly gay leader of Apple. Again, no word on what they discussed, but do you think there was a reason for the meeting? Tim Cook oversees the most successful digital technology company in history. Would the Vatican have a critical interest in the way Apple develops and uses its, its technology? It certainly would. What were these men up to? Friends, we did not have long to wait to find out at least some things these men were apparently talking about. Within a matter of seven days, the Pope met with two of the most important people that currently shape the future of global society. Friends, these meetings were strategic. Eric Schmidt and Tim Cook were likely invited to the Vatican to discuss how to shape the future of the digital world, deal with terrorism, and other opposition to the Vatican's plans. If the world is going to worship at the feet of the beast, digital technology will certainly play a role on both sides of the great controversy. Marking the World Day of Social Communications on January 22, the same day he met with Tim Cook, Pope Francis said, The digital world is a public square, a meeting place where we can either encourage or demean one another, engage in meaningful discussion or unfair attacks. The Internet, he said, can be used wisely to build a society which is healthy and open to sharing. What is the Pope referring to? The Pope, remember, is actively building a society that aligns every nation, kindred, tongue, and people with Rome so far as possible. Controlling the Internet would be very important to that goal, wouldn't it? 
making it difficult for any extremist organization to get its message out there on digital media would be one of the aims. However, it would also stand to reason that the Vatican would want to prevent other forms of speech as well, including speech that exposes Rome's true nature. It would likely want to eventually prevent the true Bible position concerning Rome and the Antichrist from being spread online. But first, some things need to be put in place, and Google and Apple are vital to reaching that objective. Google, along with Facebook and Twitter and all digital giants, have been pressured by secular governments to limit freedom of speech on their platforms in order to prevent extremist groups like ISIS from using them. And while they have been sympathetic, they have balked at this because they do not want to be seen as opposed to freedom of speech. In fact, they want to be seen as champions of free speech, which is one of the key benefits of their technology. For instance, recently the FBI asked Tim Cook and Apple to develop a way for them to access iPhones in order to investigate terrorist activity. Apple, at least at the time I prepared this sermon, was resisting the FBI on the grounds of privacy. But look what happened shortly after Eric Schmidt met with the Pope. On February 2, 2016, Google said it would redirect extremist-related entries into the search engine. They are to be shown anti-radicalization links under a pilot program. The Guardian reported, Google is also running a parallel pilot program designed to make counter-radicalization videos easier to find. Speaking of extremist behavior like ISIS, Anthony House, senior manager for public policy and communications at Google, said keeping people safe is our number one priority. ISIS is part of that, but it is absolutely not the only extremist organization or behavior that we care about. What other types of behavior would government ministers, Google, and other social media giants be concerned about? Are there less violent forms of so-called extremism that they want to limit? Those who proclaim God's last message will become the targets of Rome. Would major corporations like Google and Apple, which the Bible describes as the merchants of the earth, prevent God's true people from giving that final message? After all, part of that message is the second angel of Revelation 14 and the fourth angel of Revelation 18, which say that Babylon has fallen. We should get the bad stuff down, said Anthony House. It is also extremely important that people are able to find good information, that when people are feeling isolated, when they go online, they find a community of hope, not a community of harm. And while there's a lo obviously a lot of bad stuff on the Internet, yet it is not the war games, the sex sites, and the gambling sites that House was talking about. He is first and foremost talking about extremist sites, including those of groups like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and others. But what is defined as bad stuff? One day, do you think your beliefs will be identified as bad stuff, too? Maybe your website will be redirected to another site that will oppose your beliefs and principles, all in the name of keeping people safe. Safe from what? Safe from a true Bible understanding of salvation and of the times in which we live? Google, Apple, and other mega social media companies have enormous power over society. Now they are probably going to use their power to control the digital world. Eventually they'll use their power to oppose God's true people. If you don't believe me, just wait and see. The Pope is working on global unity between religions and also between world leaders and the papacy. Here is something else 
Pope Francis said on the same day he met with Apple CEO Tim Cook. The Pope said digital technology and the Internet could help bring people together, but also has the potential to create deep wounds. And speaking against hate speech, the Pope said, Our words and actions should be such as to help us all escape the vicious circles of condemnation and vengeance which continue to ensnare individuals and nations, encouraging expressions of hatred. While it's obvious there's a lot of hatred in the world, and vengeance seems to reign supreme in many cultures, Pope Francis believes that expressions of hatred should be eliminated. He is trying to heal long-standing wounds and is doing a very good job of it, but the papal definition of hate speech is certainly very broad and includes the Bible's condemnation of her own beliefs and practices. The first step of persecution is restriction of freedom of speech. But from there it leads to deeper and deeper punishments for those who refuse to submit to Rome until it finally imposes a death penalty. Oh, friends, can you see where this is heading? Can you see why the Pope is so concerned about the use of the Internet that he brought Eric Schmidt and Tim Cook to the Vatican just one week apart to discuss with them the digital environment and how to control it? One of them dominates the Internet, the other one dominates technology. While Rome is constructing spiritual Babylon and making it into a global spiritual empire, it has certainly fallen and will continue in that fallen state even when Rome rides high on popularity with the leaders of the nations and merchants of the earth. She will be given permission to make war with the saints and overcome them. That means, my friends, that if you live for Jesus, you will come under persecution and lose your liberties. Expect it, plan on it, prepare for it. I've often said that the future belongs to socialism, and that's very true. However, I'm going to go further and say that the future belongs to Roman Catholic socialism. Roman Catholicism is predicted in Scripture to become the world ruler worshipped by billions while guiding the processes and operations of the global political, economic, and religious sectors of society. And the Pope is already preparing to demonize those who oppose Rome's teaching. And he even coined a new phrase to do it. Listen to what he said. It is the terrorism of gossip, he said with passion. He who gossips is a terrorist that throws a bomb and destroys. Gossip destroys. So if your message exposing the errors of Rome is defined by the Pope as the terrorism of gossip, what do you think those social media companies will do to your website and your social media accounts? The Pope has also condemned fundamentalism as a disease. And on another occasion he said, a fundamentalist group, although it may not kill anyone, although it may not strike anyone, is violent. The mental structure of fundamentalists is violence in the name of God. And on yet another occasion, he urged all religions to unite together to fight extremism and fundamentalism. Fundamentalism in a Christian setting is a strong adherence to the authority of the Bible and a literal interpretation and application of its principles to your life. So if you hold to the Bible and refuse to join the global ecumenical religious coalition that is currently forming, the Pope has already laid the groundwork for you to be condemned and ostracized from society as a fundamentalist and to be eventually driven out from among men and persecuted. And if you raise your voice in protest against the teachings of Rome, you are already being isolated in people's minds as a fanatic and a violent fundamentalist 
or extremist. Probation is closing soon, my friends. The whole world is joining together to fight against God's people in the final climactic moments of Earth's history. I want to walk with Jesus today. I want to be faithful to his all-encompassing claims on my life. I want to put away sin so that he can stand by my side in the soon-coming persecution. How about you? Friends, we are almost there. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we see so much happening in the world that it's almost overwhelming. We pray that you will send your Holy Spirit into our hearts that we may live in harmony with heaven and we'll be able to, through Christ, to withstand the persecution that is coming upon us. We pray that one day we will be able to eat of the tree of life with leaves that are for the true healing of the nations. We ask you to heal the deadly wound in our hearts and replace it with enmity to Satan so that Christ can give us his special protection and strength in the time of trouble in the last days. And we thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh I need thee, every hour I need thee, oh bless me now, my Savior, I come to Thee. I need Thee every hour, stay Thou nearby, me now.
We hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The song you've just heard is called I Need Thee Every Hour, sung by Christian Berdahl. It's recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called Consecration. This lovely CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry. And if you would like to have a copy of this CD or copies for your friends or family, just send $16 each postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we'll gladly send them. Please mention the Consecration CD. Our international listeners should send $20 USD. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, Pope Francis says obstinate Christians are rebels and idolaters. At a recent Mass at the Vatican, Pope Francis said those who have closed their hearts to the surprises of the Holy Spirit are obstinate idolaters and rebels and will never arrive at the fullness of truth. The fullness of truth, presumably, is the idolatrous Catholic Mass. Those who refuse to join in Rome's ecumenical ways would no doubt then be considered obstinate rebels and idolaters by Rome. The Pope quoted the book of Samuel and said that Saul was rejected by God as king of Israel because he disobeyed, because he said it's always been done that way. Apparently the Pope means that those who reject the papal system of worship are like Saul. He also quoted Christ, who said, No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old cloak. If he does, its fullness pulls away the new from the old, and the tear gets worse. Likewise, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the skins are ruined. Rather, new wine is poured into fresh wineskins. Again, if a Christian does not open his heart to Rome's overtures, he is pouring new wine into old wineskins and is obstinate. If you have a heart closed to the newness of the Spirit, presumably the ecumenical Spirit, you will never reach the full truth, he said. A closed heart means you are not able to change the wineskins. There is the Holy Spirit who leads us into the full truth, the Pope added, and for this reason he needs an open heart, a heart that will not stubbornly remain in the sin of idolatry of oneself, imagining that my own opinion is more important than the surprise of the Holy Spirit. Rome is framing her arguments against those who refuse to join her ecumenical projects and come into line with Rome's purposes. Those who place the Bible above the teachings of men will be accused of being obstinate and rebellious. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Revelation 13, verse 7. Next, 
Business Leaders Being Brought Under Papal Manipulation Pope Francis has frequently criticized the economic system and capitalism as inadequate to help the poor. The Global Foundation, an Australian non-profit that promotes discussion between businesses, government, and other civil institutions, organized the meeting. The meeting at the Vatican discussed job creation for women and youth, as well as how to end modern slavery. Australian Cardinal George Pell, the Vatican's finance chief, headlined the meeting. Market economics have brought unprecedented prosperity and represent, despite their many faults and deficiencies, an extraordinary human achievement, Pell told the 50-odd attendees that included International Monetary Fund Managing Director Christine Lagarde, McKinsey Managing Director Dominic Barton, Anglo-American Chief Mark Cutafani, and Robert Thompson, Chief Executive Officer of News Corp., which owns the Australian. Cardinal Pietro Parolin, the Vatican Secretary of State, also addressed the roundtable, saying that the Pope had lauded the spirit of enterprise. Pope Francis has raised tensions between the Vatican and defenders of modern capitalism to unprecedented levels. He has championed the rights of workers, provides the rhetoric and moral high ground for enemies of capitalism and those who would take us back to a feudal, backward-looking society, said Kishore Jayabalan, a former Vatican staff member. Business leaders have made a number of attempts to amend the tense relations with the Vatican. For instance, Exxon sent a top lobbyist to brief the Vatican on its economic views, and Unilever chief Paul Pullman praised the Pope's message on the environment. In 2013, mining executives came to the Vatican for two meetings focused on the criticisms of the social and environmental impact of mining. They had to learn to speak each other's language. Following that meeting, the Vatican organized a separate meeting with mining protesters in 2014 that included a pointed message saying that the mining companies had been guilty of causing pollution and violating human rights in their labor practices. In a recent meeting, Christine Lagarde, IMF chief, who met with the Pope during the two-day meeting, echoed Francis in a speech in which she said, Getting back on the right path requires education and leadership that is sustained over many years. Most importantly of all, it requires investors and financial leaders taking values as seriously as valuation, culture as seriously as capital. Also echoing the papal call for morality in the global economic system is Mark Carney, governor of the Bank of England and chairman of the G20's Financial Stability Board. He said in a 2015 speech that to restore trust in the broader financial system, global financial institutions need to rediscover their values. He added, Integrity cannot be legislated and it certainly cannot be bought. It must come from within. Papal influence over global economics has business leaders concerned. They see Pope Francis as one of the most threatening forces that is undermining trust in the economic system and must do something about it. Through expertly crafted criticism that Francis knows how to wield magnificently, the very popular Pope creates a global social dynamic that brings those he criticizes to his feet to discuss ways to mend the relationship and stop the criticism. It is a masterful stroke to bring the world to its knees in reverence for papal influence and thus under papal control. The Pope may be able to force at least some change. 
which would bring the financial sector reluctantly under papal authority. The Pope is rapidly bringing the key sectors of global, social, business, economic, and religious institutions into line with the Vatican. Who hath taken this counsel against Tyre, the crowning city, whose merchants are princes, whose traffickers are the honorable of the earth? The Lord of hosts has purposed it to stain the pride of all glory and to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. Isaiah 23, verses 8 and 9. And he cried with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. That's Revelation 18, verse 2 and 3. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more. Revelation 18, verse 11. Next, French president wants to change the French constitution. Francois Hollande is seeking to expand the emergency powers he engaged in November 2015 after the terrorist attacks in Paris. The state of emergency gave the government authority to search houses without a warrant and restrict the right to peaceful assembly, all without judicial oversight. Hollande now wants to change the French constitution to expand the scope of these emergency powers, including stripping French nationality from citizens who are found guilty of terrorist offenses. Previously, he wanted to apply this to offenders with dual nationality, but now French ministers are implying that it would also apply to French citizens who have just one passport leaving them stateless. In addition, the government wants to expand nighttime searches and loosening the detention restrictions, among other things. This is a sharp change in direction for France, which denaturalized Jews in Vichy, France, during World War II and opened the legal door for their deportation to German concentration camps. And it reflects a major political shift to the right. After World War II, France was one of only 64 nations to sign the UN Convention on the Reduction of Statelessness to help resolve the problem of many stateless persons in Europe at the time. Currently, there is estimated to be about 1,200 stateless people in France. Now that France is considering imposing statelessness on some of its citizens, could other groups eventually be considered enemies of the state and stripped of their citizenship? just like the Jewish people, many of them Sabbath keepers in World War II France? Every principle of Western constitutions will be repudiated. Many will be left without defense. And while the aim at the moment is to curtail Muslim extremism, what is to prevent the tools being created to deal with such evil from being used against a more benign force, the people of truth and the righteousness of Christ? Does that seem impossible? History repeats itself in surprising ways. The season of distress and anguish before us will require a faith that can endure weariness, delay, and hunger, a faith that will not faint, though severely tried. The period of probation is granted to all to prepare for that time. Jacob prevailed because he was persevering and determined. His victory is an evidence of the power of importunate prayer. 
All who will lay hold of God's promises as he did and be as earnest and persevering as he was will succeed as he succeeded. Those who are unwilling to deny self, to agonize before God, to pray long and earnestly for his blessing will not obtain it. Wrestling with God, how few know what it is. How few have ever had their souls drawn out after God with intensity of desire until every power is on the stretch. When waves of despair, which no language can express, sweep over the suppliant, how few cling with unyielding faith to the promises of God. The time of trouble such as never was is soon to open upon us, and we will need an experience which we do not now possess, and which many are too indolent to obtain. Great Controversy, page 621 and 622. Next, Pope Francis meets with tech execs. Pope Francis, a self-confessed tech dinosaur, met with the longtime CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt, for a private audience on January 15. While there is much speculation about the 15-minute meeting at the Vatican, it is not clear what the discussion was about. The Vatican will not discuss the content of their meeting. Nevertheless, the tech exec and the Pope have some common interest. Schmidt set up a family foundation dedicated to the sustainable use of energy and natural resources, something that resonates with the Pope. But though the secret contents of the meeting remain a mystery, a video report on the meeting by Rome Reports showed Schmidt at the end of the meeting saying to Pope Francis, I want to work with you to make these points. We will make it happen. The audience with Schmidt, dubbed a Google Hangout by one popular blogger, is extraordinary because pontiffs rarely give private audiences to top business chiefs because they don't want to appear as endorsing their products. However, there are obviously bigger issues that the two men wanted to discuss. Perhaps the Pope had some requests for the Google CEO. One week later, the Pope gave a private audience with Tim Cook, the openly gay leader of Apple Inc. Again, no word on what they discussed. Obviously, these merchants of the earth and the Vatican are up to something. Perhaps in due time we'll find out. In the meantime, they will no doubt benefit by their collaboration with the Pope in his requests. Google and Apple wonder after. See Revelation 13, verse 3. Next, Dominica wonders after. Pope Francis cordially met with Angelo Severin, the president of the Commonwealth of Dominica. They discussed the good bilateral relations between the Holy See and the Caribbean island nation, which is 61% Catholic. Like with almost every other nation, their relationship is an opportunity for a fruitful and mutual cooperation between the state and the Catholic Church, a Vatican statement said. The communique also noted that both parties recognize that the Church offers a significant contribution to the promotion of the dignity of the human person as well as in the fields such as the education of young people and offering assistance to those most in need. The two men spoke about regional and global issues such as the protection of the environment and climate change. They also discussed natural disasters which have affected the island. As usual, after the meeting with the Pope, Severin met with Vatican Secretary of State Cardinal Pietro Perelin and Secretary for Relations with States Archbishop Paul Richard Gallagher. Dominica has a population of some 72,000 people, of whom about 61% are Roman Catholic. All the world wondered, Revelation 13, verse 3. 
Next, the Catholic Church diplomacy is now almost worldwide. The Holy See has diplomatic relations with 180 nations, and its diplomatic corps is the oldest of all, going all the way back in some cases to the 5th century and more formally since the 15th century. Today, the Vatican's ultra-discreet diplomacy help broker deals between nations and has become the political tool that packs a real punch. The Holy See also has formal diplomatic relations with 16 intergovernmental bodies, including the United Nations, the African Union, and the Organization of American States. There are a few countries that still do not have diplomatic relations with the Holy See. China, Saudi Arabia, North Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Bhutan. While bilateral relations have been growing steadily from the 19th century, it was during the reign of John Paul II that it expanded from 85 nations to 174, including the addition of the United States in 1984, Great Britain in 1982, and Mexico in 1992. And while the Holy See is a permanent observer at the United Nations, that's not a voting member, It can participate in UN conventions, make speeches, and other functions that full members can do. The Roman Church is far-reaching in her plans and modes of operation. She is employing every device to extend her influence and increase her power in preparation for a fierce and determined conflict to regain control of the world, to reestablish persecution, and to undo all that Protestantism has done. Catholicism is gaining ground on every side. Great Controversy, page 566. Next, Donald Trump says that if he is president, Christians will have plenty of power. Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump unequivocally embraced the evangelical Christian community in a Saturday speech in Sioux Center, Iowa. I'm a true believer, he said, and you're many true believers. I hope all. Is everybody a true believer in this room? I think so. But Christianity is under tremendous siege, Trump told supporters at Dort College, a Christian liberal arts school. Trump lamented that Christians do not wield as much political influence in the U.S. as they could. The power of our group of people together, I mean, if you add it up, it could be 240, 250 million. And yet we don't exert the power that we should have. Now, I think some of the churches are afraid of their tax status, to be honest, he added. But you know the fact is, there is nothing the politicians can do to you if you band together. You have too much power. But the Christians don't use their power, Trump said. We have to strengthen, because we are getting, if you look, it's death by a million cuts, we are getting less and less and less powerful in terms of a religion and in terms of a force, he continued. And by the way, Christianity will have power without having to form, he added, Because if I'm elected president, you're going to have plenty of power. You don't need anybody else. You're going to have somebody representing you very, very well. Remember that. The uniting of church and state is a principle of popery and will lead to Sunday laws. The United States has been chipping away at all of its constitutional protections of liberty, including religious liberty. And while there have been attempts to strengthen church-state ties in the past, The strong bulwark of constitutional protections of religious liberty have prevented the uniting of church and state and have protected against religious statism. But that is no longer the case. 
Liberties have been eroded considerably in recent years to the point where even religious liberty is under assault. Once the strong reaction to secular liberalism and socialism matures, which is clearly developing in the Republican voters, response to Trump's political campaign, Sunday laws and other forms of oppressive enactments are much more likely. When the leading churches of the United States, uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common, shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions, then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy, and the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. Great Controversy, page 445. Next, Pope Francis apologizes again. In an effort to deepen unity, Pope Francis apologized for the Catholic Church's mistreatment of other Christians and called on Catholics to forgive followers of those traditions for any offenses of today and in the past. Rome increasingly covers her past with apologies and kindness in an effort to appeal to non-Catholics to join with her in ecumenical activities. As Bishop of Rome and Shepherd of the Catholic Church, I plead for mercy and forgiveness for non-evangelical behaviors by Catholics against Christians of other churches, Francis said. We cannot undo what was done in the past, but we don't want to allow the weight of past sins to pollute our relationships, he said. The mercy of God will renew our relations. The Pope said these words during an ecumenical Vesper service in the packed Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls in Rome at the close of the annual week of prayer for Christian unity. Representatives of various churches, such as Anglicans, Orthodox, and Pentecostals, participated in the event. The Pope asked all to ask, above all, the forgiveness for the sin of our division and open wound in the body of Christ. We will move forward on the road to full, visible communion among Christians, not only when we get closer to one another, but especially when we are converted to the Lord, that by His grace chooses us and calls us to be His disciples. Francis said, adding that it's not only the call which unites us, but we also share the same mission to proclaim the wonderful works of God. Walking and working together, we will realize that we are already united in the name of the Lord. The Roman Church now presents a fair front to the world, covering with apologies her record of horrible cruelties. She has clothed herself in Christ-like garments, but she is unchanged. Every principle of the papacy that existed in past ages exists today. That's Great Controversy, page 571. Next, fundamentalism a disease. Have you noticed how that the Pope has called fundamentalism a disease? Pay attention to this, my friends. While on his plane returning from Africa, Pope Francis said that fundamentalism is a disease of all religions. His remarks were primarily targeting Islamic fundamentalism and the violence that it engenders, Though he included the Roman Catholic Church, saying that even his own church has fundamentalists, he excoriated those of all churches who adhere to a basic set of beliefs, linking it to violence. Fundamentalism is always a tragedy, he said. It is not religious. It lacks God. It is idolatrous, he added. He called on Christians and Muslims to end sectarian conflict in the Central African Republic, where he had been visiting and other places. Together we must say no to hatred, to revenge, and to violence, particularly that violence which is perpetrated in the name of a religion or of God himself, he said. 
Francis believes that Islam was not the only religion to suffer from violent extremists. We Catholics, we have a few, even many, fundamentalists. They believe they know absolute truth and corrupt others, he said, adding, I can say this because this is my church. So anyone who believes they know absolute truth is a fundamentalist, according to Pope Francis, and is therefore a potential terrorist. Does the Bible teach absolute truth? Not according to the Catholic Church. Church traditions, as well as the Bible, define truth, according to the Pope. This places the Church above the Bible to determine what in the Bible is truth and what is not truth. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to base my understanding of truth on any fallible man or organization. The Bible is the foundation of truth, all truth. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The primary aim of the papacy is to keep you from becoming a man of God that is perfect in Christ. They want to keep you from obeying God's law and living for yourself, all the while thinking that you are saved. This is not the first time that Pope Francis has condemned fundamentalism. During his speech to the U.S. Congress in September, he said, We know that no religion is immune from forms of individual delusion or ideological extremism. This means that we must be especially attentive to every form of fundamentalism, whether religious or of every other kind. Well, we had better find out what fundamentalism is then. The dictionary defines fundamentalism as a movement in Protestantism in the early part of the 20th century that stresses the infallibility of the Bible in matters of faith and morals, and also as a literal historical record. Of course, there are broader definitions that include a strict adherence to any set of beliefs or ideas. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.